As Jason said a few minutes ago, we are in a series in the book of Nehemiah. I hope many of you have this guide or you're working with it perhaps with your small group or with a friend. And we are in Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I hope that you do. Please uh, open it up and we'll get there in just a minute. Nehemiah chapter 4 in a message called The Real Work Begins. You know, every great venture... um, begins with inspiration. I think for the most part that's true. You know, whether it's going to college, at least for some of us, you know, uh, for the first time, that's a, that's, a, that's a big step in life. You know, that's, a, that's an adventure. And often it begins with inspiration. Getting married uh, is certainly uh, a huge uh, adventure. It's a great venture. Having a child for the first time. Those of you who, you know, think back to uh, your very first time you became a parent. Um, it's a very big deal. Certainly it's true when you're doing something um, big uh, for God, right? A big adventure. It's inspiring to, to build the walls. We're looking at the book of Nehemiah. To plant a church, uh, those of you who've ever been involved in something like that. To go out on a mission, or in our case, to try to see ourselves at this moment, right? Look forward and to imagine us being um, a larger church, reaching an increased number of people, like Laquana just uh, illustrated, who don't know Christ as the very first time. It begins with inspiration, but... There comes a time, or series, a long time really, where that inspiration, that hope, uh, needs to be matched by a sustained commitment. And where our faith, your faith, my faith, needs to be tested uh, to see if we can, uh, are ultimately going to be used by God to achieve what it is that we feel called to do. It's always easier to uh, begin a work uh, than it is to continue one. And one of the first lessons that anyone that, who has successfully accomplished something great, personally or even in an organization, will tell you this, my first point, that conflict is inevitable uh, in things that matter most, right? Conflict is inevitable in things... It's true in everything. I, I came across this book recently... Um, we had, a, we had a couple's night here Friday. I wasn't here, but I saw all the doings. It was a great uh, night. I think about almost 100 uh, people that came out. And, uh, but it was a book uh, by a well-known author. Some of you uh, may know him, Paul David Tripp, who's written a lot of books, um, particularly on marriage. And the title of the book is, What Did You Expect? Right? <laughs> you know? In other words... Uh, you know, you know this, that marriages, the, that, that, you know, even within the church, half of them never make it. What did you expect, right? Conflict is inevitable in things that matter most. It's true in anything that's worthwhile, including any relationships. And it is certainly true in this story, and I think it's true in ours as well, uh, as we seek to build our wall, so to speak, to advance this church in this season. So let's read some verses. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 and 10 through 12. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 6, 10 through 12. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? 
Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Then Nehemiah said, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah uh, said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now it's interesting in this entire passage, we'll read some more of it in a minute, but in Nehemiah chapter 4, twice, uh, the first time it's mentioned uh, in, in, the, uh, in Nehemiah's prayer, and then again in verse 15, the word enemies is used, right? The enemies of God. Jason talked about it a minute ago, right? Whatever, you've, whatever God has called me to do, just, my, just living out my faith, just being faithful as a Christian, doing what I feel God has called me to do, you know, God's will for my life, or living out a calling, right, as we, as we have in the life of the church, we will have opposition, right? Conflict is inevitable in, in things that matter most. There are enemies, and if you read this book carefully, and I hope that you're doing that over the course of these many weeks, you will see that what he calls enemies, and they're mentioned verse 7 through 8, and, you know, they, they mention these four different enemies. These enemies appear um, from the beginning of the book. The first time uh, we looked at it uh, two weeks ago, the first time that Nehemiah, or last week, uh, uh, finds himself in Jerusalem, when he finally gets there, before he even says a word, the enemies of God, they're mentioned by name. In fact, if you ver look at verse 7, I didn't go over it, but now there's four enemies mentioned, Sam Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdod. He the, mentions these um, geographies on purpose. And if you, if you maybe in your small group, you'll look at this study more carefully. But he mentions them on purpose because if you sit there with a map, and you look at the four people that are mentioned here, it actually surrounds Jerusalem, north, south, east, and west. There are, there are enemies all around this small little community trying to build this wall in Jerusalem, and they're mentioned twice in this passage, and they're not only there the very first day that he shows up, there in, in chapter 2 when he finally gets there, you find them all throughout the book, even in the last chapter. After Nehemiah has gone back, the work has been finished for a while, he goes back to his real job in Susa, and then it says for a time, we don't know if it's, if it's years, and he comes back years later to visit as the former governor of Jerusalem, and again, the enemies of God are mentioned. It should say something to you, and say something to me. In the beginning, in the inspiration stage, when the wall is half done, even when it's all done, and years go by, the enemies of God, so to speak, are always going to be there. They're going to be there in your marriage. They're going to be there in raising children. They're going to be there in anything significant that God calls you to do. But the big lesson of this chapter is they ought not be a reason for you to quit, right? They're inevitable. But here's what's so interesting to me 
about this book and about these enemies, right? They're all over this chapter. In this chapter, they're not only there, they're not only throwing out, you know, criticisms, uh, um, but they are, um, what, what is it that they're really trying to do? Right? Even though they're throwing out criticisms, there's even all this talk anyway. It says the, 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 the army of Samaria is there in the first couple of verses. What does that mean? There's an army actually coming out just to stop these people from the wall. And there are threats made. It says what we read in verse 11 and 12. Before we know it, they're going to be there among us. Even the Jews, that is the neighbors, the people who live, who weren't necessarily working on the wall, but they came that they lived around Jerusalem. I said, listen, we want you to know what's on the street. We want you to know you don't know it, but we hear it, and we just want to report to you that the word on the street is that they are going to attack at any minute. Now, what's so interesting, though, about this is if you read the entire book of Nehemiah, the enemies of God, listen very carefully, they never actually do anything to interrupt the work. They never get in the way. They never throw a stone. They never call the police. They never actually do anything to stop the work except to try to frighten them and to try to intimidate them. All the enemies of God do in the entire book of Nehemiah, in fact, you look at chapter 6, I think it's verse 9 uh, or maybe 15 and following. It says, they came to frighten us and they were hired to intimidate us, right? All they actually did was try to exacerbate, try to focus on their fears because they said, listen, the king has already kept us. If you remember chapter one, the king has already given them permission to do this work. Same goes for you and me. If God's called me into to be his son, if you've called you to be his son or his daughter, if he's called us as a church, listen, God is going to accomplish through us what he wants to accomplish because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. You can't get in God's way, but what the enemy can do is get inside your head, right? That's what he wants to do here. Look carefully, just quickly, at, 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 what's, at what's said in chapters uh, or verses 1 and 2. All throughout the book of Nehemiah, there's real fear, there's real concern, there's people sleeping in their clothes, there's people, as, as, as Jason said, with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They take it seriously, but nothing ever happens except, you might call, a kind of psychological warfare. Now look at verse uh, uh, 2. He ridiculed the Jews in the presence of the associates of the army of Samaria. He said, now watch this, what are those feeble Jews doing, Right? These words are taken very carefully. Feeble Jews, right? The first thing that's going to happen to you and happen to me, right, is an attack on your character, right? Who are those feeble Jews? Who do you think you're doing, right? It's an attack on your character. Second, will they restore the wall, right? It's first it's an attack on your character. Second, it's an attack on your calling. God didn't call you to do that. God didn't call uh, us to do that. Who are you kidding? Will they restore the wall? Third, Will they offer sacrifices, right? It's, a, it's an attack on your faith, right? Your faith is an illusion. Your faith is, is pointless. That's what the whole sacrificial system, will they offer sacrifices? And last, uh, um, will they bring these stones back to life, right? It's an attack on your character, an attack on whether or not God has ever called you or us as a church to do anything, an attack on your faith, 
and ultimately an attack on the work that stands before you. You'll never get it done. Don't even waste your time. You could never bring these stones back to life, right? They didn't actually do anything. They just simply attacked them and discouraged them. You're no good. God didn't call you. Your faith is wishful thinking. And you will never change. And this church will never reach the growth aspirations that it has. Now, the, the, the old, the, the, the 20th century term, as I said a second ago for this, is psychological warfare, right? But it's a very, very old, old strategy, right? And that old strategy is going to reach into your family at times, right? And even, the, even inside the church, that's why these verses are here, verse 11 and 12. Also our enemies said, before they know it, this is what was reported. This is the word on the street, but in verse 12, it says, the Jews who live near them, right? This is maybe very well the family members of the people who were building the wall, right? The wall had, you know, didn't have uh, 40,000. There were 40,000 people at least, Ezra says, who came back to live in um, Jerusalem. There weren't 40,000 people building the wall. The wall of Jerusalem's not that big. There were families there. You can read carefully 39 different groups of families mentioned in chapter 3. But all of those people who were building the wall every day, day and night, worked you know, tirelessly, the, the chapter says. They had members of their family, right, that lived in the suburbs around uh, uh, Jerusalem. And because Nehemiah was a great leader and he wouldn't take the criticism, the enemies of God went to those suburbs, went to the family members, and tried to discourage them. And that will happen to you and it will happen to me. But it will not only happen from your family, it will not only happen from sometimes even inside the faith community, but it will absolutely happen um, from, from what Jesus calls uh, the invisible world or the, the evil one, right? And we don't talk a lot about this, uh, I suppose, in, in church in 21st century because we, we have a very, um, you know, many of us, we're, we're too sophisticated to talk about personified evil, but you know what? Jesus talks about it. And let me say something about uh, Satan, the devil, personified evil, right? It's not our only enemy, but he is a real enemy. His goal, if you read carefully the scriptures, his goal is not to send you to hell, okay? And Satan does not have the power to do that anyway, right? His goal is one thing, to stop you and to stop me from building the wall. That's all he cares about, to stop you from doing what it is God has called you to do. Has God called you to be faithful uh, in your marriage commitment because that's a testimony to the people around you, Ephesians 5? That's what he wants to stop you to do. Has God called you, like Laquana, simply to share your faith in a very natural way with the people around you? Then that's what God has called you. That's all he wants to stop you to do. If God has called us as a church to grow, that's what he wants us to stop us to do. Look at uh, uh, one passage. Ephesians, uh, uh, just, to, just to help us see our application of this passage, right? Verses 12, chap chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, right? We live in a different day. For the most part, this is true in some places in the world where people are actually have actual enemies to build a church, let's say. Not true in our case. But we have our enemies. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let me tell you something. When you look carefully at the New Testament, 
What are the wiles of the devil? What are the schemes of the devil? Let me tell you what they are. Anger, unresolved anger and bitterness. Unforgiveness. And, a, and, 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 and ultimately a discouragement to tell you, just like the, 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 the words of uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1, 1 and 2, that you aren't good enough, that God's never called you to do anything, and you, you don't have what it takes to get this done. That's the wiles of the devil. That's what, God, that, that's what the enemies of God are going to work on in your life, and they're going to work on in my life. And the sad thing is, right, many of us in our walk with God or in our commitment to see this church grow, we stop, we give up without ever actually experiencing real opposition, right? It's only intimidation and fear and uh, Nehemiah doesn't want to give up on that. You know, just as I was thinking about this message, I went back for the first time in, 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 uh, in um, 10 months, and I watched the sermon from December of this past year, um, the week that this, if you remember, <laughs> bring up a bad memory, of the, the situation with uh, the Nazareth students that came here and that whole scenario. First time I watched it, you know, and here's what I remembered by watching it. You may remember this. Not only was that obviously a, a very unusual situation and our church was put in a, in a difficult position, but it was the same Sunday that we announced the totals of the REACH initiative, right? right? Conflict is inevitable in things that matter most, right, guys? That will always be the case. The question is, are we prepared for it? Are we going to do what is very typical? We'll see Nehemiah doesn't do this. Are we going to stop the work? It doesn't matter what we do after that. As long as we stop the work, the enemy has been successful, right? Or are we going to keep our um, focus on what it is that God has called us to do? Speaking of awakenings, we call this series... Some of you may know, I don't know if you know this, there's um, the greatest religious revival that ever happened in America anyway was in um, the 18th century, before, right around independence. It was called the Great Awakening. And there are many great names associated with it. You know, some, I don't know if you guys remember this history, but some of you might. Names like um, Jonathan Edwards. Names like um, John Wesley, right? Names like Charles Wesley, who wrote, you know, most of the hymns in your hymn book, if you, if you, if you uh, remember those from, from your life. Um, but the greatest name, really, of all the great lights of the 18th century's um, Great Awakening, America's greatest religious revival, was a guy named George Whitfield. And George Whitfield ended up being a, a sort of itinerant preacher and pastor in uh, most of New England, and is buried uh, in, in New England. And he is actually, the, some people I read recently, that George Whitfield, his preaching was so influential that many people credited him partly with the American Revolution itself. He had such an influence. Benjamin Franklin was not necessarily a convert, but he said someone who heard George Whitfield speak, he was so impressed with Whitfield that he was his American publisher for his sermons. And Whitfield is the one, or I'm sure me, Benjamin Franklin is the one that said, because people had all these, you know, inflated ideas of how big are the crowds he spoke to, and Whitfield, and, and Benjamin Franklin said, I'm going to go to one of his uh, uh, outdoor uh, um, uh, venues, and Whitfield said, as George Whitfield started to preach, I'm sorry, Benjamin Franklin said, he started to walk away 
from the venue as far as he could go until he could no longer hear Whitfield's voice. And then he did a calculation, being you know, the, the great uh, smart man that he was. And he said it, there was probably 10,000 people without a microphone, right? In fact, George Whitfield... Um, it is said, is the one who was the pioneer, we don't, some of us wouldn't even know what this means anymore, but of open air preaching, right? In other words, you set up a tent and you have people come out, not in a church building, but you do it outside, right? Church on the lawn's an old idea, okay? And George Whitfield did it and he would have hundreds and thousands of people come. But you know, one of the reasons he did open air preaching, very interesting, outside, uh, on, in, in street corners, in the marketplace, was because many of the churches that Whitfield, um, there were Anglican churches, remember this is pre-revolution, Anglican churches, which is the Church of England, many of the churches would not let him speak. And the reason they would not let him speak is because he had such a strong commitment to the gospel, such a strong commitment to you must be born again, you must receive God's grace. He had a strong commitment to the gospel and many of the dead churches... Dead churches aren't a new thing, by the way, right? We think it's just a thing of what happens today. Many of the dead churches in and around New England would not let Whitfield speak. So because they wouldn't let him speak, because they didn't agree with his, his evangelical theology, he would speak outdoors, and as a result, thousands of people would come. But here's what's so interesting about conflict is inevitable in things that matter most. George Whitfield had three principles that he lived by as it concerned criticism because he received a lot of criticism. And his three principles were this. Number one, he would not reply, like in the newspaper, to his critics, right? The people would criticize him. They would say things about him. They would say, oh, you feeble Jews. Oh, you know, will you ever rebuild the wall? There was criticism. He would never reply to criticism. Number two, he would avoid engaging in controversy as, mu as, as much as possible, no matter what was said, no matter how he was baited, he would avoid it. And the third thing he did was he never let anything get in the way of proclaiming the gospel. He never stopped building the wall. And even though they wouldn't even let him in, he said, okay, let's find out. Let's just stand on the front steps of, the, uh, uh, of somewhere and we'll preach. In fact, he died, I think he was only in his mid-50s um, in New England. And the, the day before he died, very sick for a season of months, they called it the, he stood on a barrel. I think it was a, a you know, must, might have been a, 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 a beer barrel for all I know. But he stood out in an open field. He stood on a barrel and gave his last message. And 12 hours later, he died, right? Conflict is inevitable in things that matter most. Second point you see in here is a mature faith rises to meet the challenges ahead, right? This is really what you see in this passage. A mature faith rises to meet the challenges ahead. Let me tell you about me. I don't know about you. When I am challenged, when I am criticized, whether it's you feeble Jews, someone criticizes my character, criticizes what I feel God has called me to do is foolish, I'm tempted to do one of two things. Either one, I'm tempted to agree with that criticism, which is attack myself, right? Or I'm tempted to reach out and attack the person who responded to me. But Nehemiah, watch what Nehemiah does. Verse 13. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall. 
at exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, so great leaders do, thought about it, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other's halves were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, for our God will fight for us. The first thing that he does, okay, good advice for you and for me, is he refuses to accept the world's low estimate on his calling, right? This is the challenge, right? Nehemiah could have, he was a, who was he kidding? He had enemies all the way around him. The walls were destroyed. Israel was, was, a, was an afterthought at this point. The glory days were hundreds of years behind them. And what these guys were saying with an army present, who are these feeble Jews? Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing, right? They could have been very easily, it would take very little for me to say, you're absolutely right, Right? But Nehemiah refused to allow the world's low estimate of his calling to, to be his view. But you know why? Because too much was at stake, right? Too much is at stake in your marriage. Too much is at stake in our commitment to want to see this church go forward. He refused to do it. But I would say many of us, this is where we fail, Right? Opposition is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. Criticism is inevitable. In this, we, many of us give up on what God is calling us to do without ever a real stone ever being thrown because we listen to what the world says and we choose to believe it because many of us, I believe, hold a secret belief. Ask yourself if this is true in your life or has been true in the life of this church that the future will only be an extension of the present right? This is what we think. We say, well, you know what? As I look out the next year, the next three years, I look out the next five years, the future is only going to be more of what I have today. Nothing is ever actually really going to change in my life. Nothing is ever really actually going to change in the life of my marriage. Nothing is actually, actually going to change in the life of this church. So why bother? First thing he does is he refuses to accept the world's low estimate of his calling. But the second thing he does is he faces this fear, he conquers this fear by pointing to the sufficiency of God. Verse, so after I thought about it, verse 12, or four, I'm sorry, verse 14, I stood up and said to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Why? Because 
we're so strong because our, our, we're so intelligent, because we're so um, um, likely to succeed, because we're bigger than them? No. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remember the Lord, right? This is what you need. This is, this is the pivot. This is what I need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what we all need to do, right? Of course conflict is inevitable. Of course there's going to be uh, people pointing fingers and, and, and attacking in, in individually and corporately as a church. Of course that's going to come. Conflict will come. But guess what? It's not about you. That's what Nehemiah realized. It's not about me. It's about God's work. God has called them in to build this wall. This all started with God. And God will fight for them. And God will frustrate the plot. Here's what happens to many of us. Here's what Nehemiah could have done. A lot of options. He could have gotten to an argument. You know, what George Whitfield wouldn't do. He could have gotten to an argument with these guys. He could have stopped the work and went back and tried to um, reinforce the commitment of the king. Listen. He could have decided, spears and swords, he could have decided to, to um, initiate a, a, a counterattack. But let me tell you something if he did that. One thing I know is true in all three of those scenarios. They would have stopped building the wall. See? And Nehemiah said, listen, his policy was shaped by his goal. And his goal was not his own ego. His goal was not his own getting his name in the paper. His goal was finishing the wall. What's yours? What's mine? And if our goal is God's goal, then we don't need to worry about it. The best advice I can give you, the best advice the Word of God can give you is this. Listen, we, we struggle against uh, 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 great forces against us. But God will fight for us. God... Um, uh, will frustrate the plots. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And the best thing that you can do is keep your focus on what it is that God has called you to do. It's the best thing you can do. It's the best thing that I can do. So what Nehemiah says is this. We're not gonna have a special meeting, right? And we're not gonna blame people. We're not gonna point fingers even at your family and your friends in Judah who, who are discouraging you. We're not gonna cry over our spilled rubble, okay? We're not gonna do it. What we're gonna do is redouble our efforts and get back to work because God is going to deal with this frustration, verse 15, and God is going to ultimately fight for us. So let's uh, move forward. And let me just say one last thing as you think about Opposition. Nehemiah is a great example, but you know we have an even better one. It's Jesus. Hebrews 12 says this. Consider him. This is what it means to remember your God. Consider him who endured such great opposition of sinners. Right? You talk about somebody who was trying to be called off of his game. Right? The temptation of the devil. Jesus endured such great, they, they hurled insults at him. You know what? He never said a word. Now, I would imagine if I was there, what a coward he is. Why don't you speak up for yourself, right? Because Jesus' policy was shaped by his goal, and his goal was loving people and saving people like you and me. And he did not, he endured such opposition of sinners, and he says, you, I should consider, Hebrews 12, 3, 
that Jesus endured such oppositions of sinners so that we might take courage and take heart, right? So we have a great example. Conflict is inevitable in things that matter most. A mature faith rises to meet the challenges of head. A mature faith trusts in God. It realizes that it's not about you. It's that you are not alone. God is with you. It's, 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 it's reflecting on the sufficiency of God and not on your own strength. And ultimately what you see here is a good challenge for all of us is that leaders eat last, right? I love this example. Just one verse. Neither I nor my brothers, right? Nehemiah. Nor my men. So he's talking about you know, his small um, leadership cohort. Nor the guards with me took off our clothes. We each had his weapon when we went for water, right? Isn't that amazing? Nehemiah said, listen, I'm right there with you. Every single one of these people, right? Nehemiah, this, is not a, uh, this was not a, an effort that was achieved by a guy riding in on a white horse, right? Nehemiah and all 39 groups of people, read chapter 3 carefully, slept inside the city, slept with a, a sword at their side, and trusted in God Almighty. They did it together, right? And if we're serious, okay, back to Laquana's video, if we're really serious about wanting to see, I'm not talking about the people in here today, right? We are the leaders. If we're serious about wanting to see an increased number of people in a broken world, in a culture that's falling deeper and deeper into a hole every day, to see them come to know faith in Jesus personally, to come to know what you and I almost take for granted, forgiveness of sin, right? If we're really committed to building the wall, to preaching the gospel, right? Leaders eat last. We all need to be in. We all need to make sacrifices. We all need to learn what it means to deal with opposition and to have a mature faith because that's the only way we're going to reach a community that doesn't know Christ. That's the only way we're going to build our wall. Amen? Stand with me. And I hope, as I say, I, I, uh, I had a great, I hope you guys are doing this. Uh, ladies on Monday, guys on Thursday, small groups happen throughout the week. My small group met this Wednesday night. It was, one, it was a great uh, a group. You know, I don't want to break confidence, but it was a great group. You know, it was, it was one of our richer uh, groups as we talked about um, Nehemiah chapter 2. I hope that you're doing that because we need to do it together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we uh, just come to you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this room. I thank you for every person here this morning. Lord, um, there's so much that I don't know. It's, it's laughable. But Lord, um, I know this, that nobody in this room, I'm confident, um, feels totally and completely um, satisfied with their faith where they stand today. Feels totally and completely satisfied that they're um, living um, in, in, in complete obedience to what you've called them to do that feels like there's no area in their life where they're challenged or criticized. I'm pretty confident that, Lord, everyone in this room 
feels challenged and maybe criticized in something you've called them to do. But Lord, I just pray uh, for all of us that we would seri- take seriously um, uh, the word of God this morning, that we would take seriously, we, we'd, we'd wake up to our, um, out of our illusion that thinks that you know, life is without problems, without difficulties, that conflict is inevitable in things that matter most, in, in whatever you have called us to do, but that a mature faith um, doesn't run from the challenges, doesn't um, capitulate to uh, the voices in our head or, or the voices of the critics around us, but rises to meet those challenges by remembering that we serve an awesome God, that re- to remembering that it is not about us, but that we are called to join you in doing something um, amazing uh, together. And Lord, I just pray, wherever uh, we find ourselves in this room, uh, I pray that, Lord, you would, you would inspire us, encourage us, empower us as a congregation to, um, to see what you see, to see people, whether it's in classrooms or, uh, or uh, uh, neighborhoods, uh, Lord, um, to see people who are lost today um, that would be, um, you know, saved tomorrow. And we just pray that you would begin with with us in this room. Uh, Lord, help us, uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.